0: is for the people who are interested in a Christian life that is marked by repeated victories instead of repeated defeats, who really want to experience abundant life. And again, as I said, when we began our study, there are so many people who live in the world of brokenness and make it to the world of recovery, but rarely do they enter into the world of victory. We have been looking briefly at Joshua in the Old Testament. And again, in the first session, we saw that Joshua was a man of prayer in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 and 9 we saw that not only was he a man of prayer, but he was also a man of vision in Exodus chapter 24. And now we explore the character qualities of devotion in Exodus chapter 33 and loyalty in Numbers chapter 11, verses 26 through 30. And in Exodus chapter 33... I want to draw your attention in particular. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to briefly talk a little bit about it. In verse 11, we find the next mention, the third mention of Joshua. It says in verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, or in Italian, faccia, faccia face to face as a man speaks to a friend and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. The chapter begins with Moses serving in the role of mediator in verses 1 through 17. And then Moses, as a worshiper in verse 18, all the way to chapter thirty four verse thirty five as an intercessor, Moses stood between Israel and Israel's past sins. as a mediator, Moses stood between the nation the, between the nation and then the future blessings before God, and in that role, Moses Becomes a type and a picture of Jesus. Jesus is your intercessor. Jesus is your mediator. Jesus stands between you and your past. And Jesus stands between you and your future. One of the interesting things about Exodus chapter 33 is that Moses wasn't content that the people should just simply experience the forgiveness of sins, but that God would desire to walk with them on their journey towards the promised land. This lesson is going to be something absolutely important and critical that Joshua is going to Learn and embrace that it's not good enough for you to just experience the forgiveness of sin. And see, for many of you, maybe that's where you've been. You've been in a place where you go, look, my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven. And I don't care. I don't care just so long as I get there. But if you're content to to, to just simply experience the forgiveness of sin, you are going to experience less than a victorious life. When people discovered that God wouldn't go with them because of their rebellion and disobedience, and this is part of what's happening in Exodus chapter 33, Rebellion and disobedience caused the presence of God to disappear, if you will. And so the people humbled themselves. They mourned their sin. And as a symbolic gesture of hatred and abhorrence of sin, Moses would move the tent of meeting, if you will, outside the camp. He put distance between himself, the place of fellowship, and the people in their sin. And some of the people would go outside of the camp to visit the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It was J. Oswald Sanders who said, Every one of us is as close to God as he has chosen to be. And I think that that's exactly right. And so when people say to me, I feel like God is gone. My immediate answer is he didn't go away. He didn't move. God hasn't abandoned you or disappeared. I think Sanders is right. Every one of us is as close to God as he's chosen to be. So Joshua continues his training for service and leadership. And in this section we see Joshua's growing devotion to the Lord. Joshua's serving in the tent. And by the way, this tent isn't the tabernacle in the wilderness because that tabernacle has yet to be built. This tent was the place where God met with Moses and shared his plans with Moses. You can find that in Numbers chapter 22 verses 6 through 8 and Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10. But it begs a question. Moses had set aside a place and Joshua had set aside a place to meet with God. Where do you go? To meet with God, where do you go to find a place to experience His presence and experience sweet fellowship? Now, remember, God Himself meets with Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting, speaks to Him as one face to face, it says in verse 11. Again, it's a picture of intimacy, it's a picture of fellowship. It's a picture of grace. Now, part of what's happening in this chapter is Moses is pleading. He's asking for God's grace to bless the people with his presence and to walk with them into the future. Now, again, this is what the intercessor and the mediator does. This is what Jesus does. This is what I try to do for you and what the leaders of the church try to do for you when you find yourself in difficulty or in in problems or experiencing setbacks or deep depressive moments, when the presence of God and the experience of God or the stumbling that has taken place in your your life, it, it feels like God isn't walking with you into the future. And Moses prays. He prays to God. For the presence of God and the grace of God and the favor of God. Now, this is important because it's the presence of God and the grace of God that makes Israel a nation that's different from every other nation in the world. And it's the presence of God and the grace of God. In your life that makes you different from the unbeliever in the world. You see, there, there should be something different. If God has come into your life, if the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you. If he walks with you and speaks with you and talks with you and you've experienced his presence. And it, it, it experience, you've experienced his grace. It sets you apart from every unbeliever. So again, look at the text in verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp. That means he leaves the place of meeting. He walks back to the camp. But his servant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, does not depart from the tabernacle. I want you to note several things. Joshua doesn't share all of Moses' privileges. The Bible doesn't say that anyone spoke to God face to face, except for Moses. Not everyone had the same privileges as Moses, but Joshua longed for the presence of the Lord in his life. He longed for the grace of God in his life. Joshua didn't base his decision on the advantages and the privileges of Moses, but rather on his own opportunities and his own privileges. And for some people, they might be thinking, you know what, if I was just in full-time ministry, if I could just devote myself, if, if, if all I had to do was wake up in the morning so that I could pray and so that I could seek God and so that I could serve him and so that I could talk with people, then I would have a different kind of a life. Well, guess what? That might not be the point of privilege in your life right now. But for Joshua, look what it says. He doesn't depart or leave the tabernacle of meeting. Think of this as the place of worship. Think of this as the place of conversation. Think of this as the place of grace. Think of this as the place of the presence of God. Joshua wants to be in the place of meeting God. Think in your mind, not just church, not just coming to church on Sunday or coming to church on Wednesday. But but again, think about your own life and ask and answer the question, do you crave fellowship? Not just simply with the Lord, but that's going to be part of it. But do you crave fellowship? fellowship with one another? Do you long for the prayers of each other, for the presence of each other in that work of mutual edification, mutual encouragement, mutual exhortation? Joshua wants to be, and when I read this, I think he comes to the place where he's experiencing God. For me, when I was a kid growing up, that was Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. It was the place where I got saved. When I got saved, I go to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I hear the gospel. I experience forgiveness of sins. I experience the grace of God and the presence of God. And maybe for some of you, the church is the place where you experience the presence of God and the grace of God and you want to be here. You want to be here on Wednesday. You are here on Wednesday. It isn't Sundays just not good enough for you. You want to be in a place of of friendship and fellowship, experiencing the presence of God, experiencing the grace of God. How like Mary in the New Testament, she wants to be with Jesus. She wants to sit at the feet of Jesus. While Martha is busy serving, Mary is spending time and devotion to Jesus. And so again, this is a type and a picture of Joshua devoted to the Lord. The servant leader wants to spend time in devotion to the Lord. Like the woman in Proverbs 31, many of you are familiar with that passage of scripture. In Proverbs 31, we see a picture of a person who is trustworthy. In Proverbs 31:11 it says that that she safe that he ch- safely trusts in her in verse 11. Her diligence, she works willingly in verses 13 through 15. And then 19 and 22, her thoughtfulness in verse 16, her helpfulness in verse 20, her influence and wisdom in first 28 and 29. And and what does the future hold for the Proverbs 31 woman? She rejoices when it In the future, it says, she shall rejoice in time to come in verse 25. In other words, this is a woman who devotes herself to the person of God and the things of God. And so again, it becomes a a time for us to consider the question of ourselves, of our devotion to the Lord. Do you set aside time for the Lord? Do you have a private place of worship and devotion as well as a public place of fellowship and prayer? How would you describe your devotion to the Lord? Early on in my Christian walk, I was taught early on to get up early and to pray and to seek the Lord. That the first thing, not the last thing, the first thing that I do is when I wake up. It's to pray. It's when my feet hit the floor. I consider the fact that the day is is going to be taking place. Almost invariably the first words out of my life or out of my mouth are, Lord, this is the day that you've made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. I'm going to commit this day to you. This morning, I've got stuff that I have to do. I'm going to have to pray with people, or I'm going to have to prepare a message, or I'm going to have to do something, or say something, or I'm going to encounter someone, or something that I am quite unfamiliar with. I don't know what the day holds, but I do know that each and every day, someone's going to... Text me, or they're going to email me, or they're going to call me, or they're going to do something, or they're going to say something, and, and nine times out of ten, it's not going to be good, it's going to be terrible. Somebody's dying, or somebody's mother has been placed in hospice, or or some child has been diagnosed with a disease, or some difficulty is taking place, or some challenge is going to take place. And guess what? You're either going to be prepared for it or you're going to be unprepared for it. Are you going to give hope? Are you going to give grace? Are you going to give mercy? Do you have a place where you can go? A time that you set aside. Servant leadership requires prayer, it requires vision. But now we see that it's going to require devotion. The discipline of devotion. Over a hundred years ago, C.J. Vaughn said, quote, If I wish to humble anyone, I should question him about his prayers. I know nothing to compare with the topic for its sorrowful confessions. It was his way of saying, If I want to bring up the subject of devotions, Hey, what time do you get up? How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend reading the Bible? How much time blah, blah, blah. But again, my goal isn't to shame you. It isn't to embarrass you. My goal is is to encourage you and admonish you that 5 minutes is better than 0 minutes and guess what if you spend 5 minutes i guarantee you there's going you're going to grow into 10 minutes and 10 minutes is going to become 15 minutes. And 15 minutes is going to become 20 minutes. Because as you open up your Bible, as you pray, as you begin to pray and think about your day, and then you begin to think about all that is, 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 is happening in our country, when you think about the, the, the incredible collapse of leadership in our country, when you think about the upcoming election, and then when you think about your wife, your husband, your children, your grandchildren, when you think about the people that you love and that you care about and that you're going to walk with throughout the day and when it's been brought to your attention, people in need and people who need help and hope, someone's going to say to you, I don't want to pray and I don't want to read my Bible and I don't want to go on. And you're going to need to be able to say, I get it that you don't want to pray. And I get it that you don't want to read your Bible. And I get it that you don't want to go on. So guess what? I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to continue to search the scriptures for you. And remind you that God is good and he's compassionate. And he's loving and he is caring. Passionate prayer. And a real vision of God. Will... Cultivate a deep desire on the part of the individual to vote to devote himself or herself to the things of God and then the people of God in order to discern the will of God. Passionate prayer and a vision will be the thing that precedes a life of devotion. And it will become a permanent part of your life. J. Oswald Sanders wrote, quote, The real qualities of leadership are to be found in those who are willing to suffer for the sake of objectives great enough to demand their wholehearted obedience. There's going to come a time in your life where something will happen that's going to require your attention, your concentration, your undivided mission. And so again, it begs yet another question. What is it that occupies your attention, your affection, your devotion, Devotions include things like personal prayer and Bible reading. But the way that I want to help you understand is to go back in time for just a little bit. We live in an age where almost, I'll bet you, everyone in this room has a smartphone. And you have more information and computing capability on your smartphone than all of the computers that existed in the world in order to put a person on the moon. I grew up in a world not of digital photography. Some of you, do you actually remember old-fashioned photography where you would take a picture and you would have film and you would have to take it into a dark room and they had a thing called exposure? You had to expose your film in a dark room? Well, that's what devotion is really like. Uh, Imagine that you're with Jesus and you expose yourself to Jesus. You expose yourself to the things of God and the word of God. And like photographic paper, Jesus is the light that exposes us. And so again, you put that blank sheet out and five minutes an image starts to form in the paper and then 10 minutes and you get to see more and more details for any of you who are interested in photography imagine that there comes a point where the picture is complete 10 minutes 15 minutes an hour a day a week and in devotion you become like him or at least that's the goal we want to be like jesus We're not content to simply see the evil in ourselves. Like in Romans chapter 7 verse 23, you begin to pray or you start to do devotions and all of a sudden all of the crud and all of the wickedness and all of the horror and all of the pain seems to well up inside of you. But guess what? With devotion you begin not simply to look at yourself, but you begin to look at Jesus You see his worth, you see his majesty, you see his work in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. You see Jesus and all of a sudden you start praying and you start reading your Bible and you're in Matthew and you're in the opening chapter and you're in a manger and you see Jesus in his humility. And then you see Jesus in the workshop of his business. You see Jesus near the Jordan submitting to baptism. You see Jesus in the wilderness of temptation. You see Jesus praying. You see Jesus full of compassion. Then all of a sudden you begin to think about your own need for humility and your own need for diligence and your own need to be about your father's business and your own need to submit and your own need to trust him and believe him and walk with him when you're in the wilderness of temptation and then you see Jesus praying and you see Jesus full of compassion You see Jesus submitting to his father. You see Jesus experiencing sorrow. And then you see Jesus experiencing triumph. And you see Jesus experiencing joy. And then we take on his love. And then we take on his compassion. And then we value what he values. We value the truth. We value integrity. We value humility. And personal prayer and devotion. It changes us. It changes our character. And then when it changes us. And then it changes our character. We begin to bend. To God's will. Instead of our own will. It was E. Stanley Jones. The famed missionary to India. Who was a man of deep devotion. He wrote, if I throw out a boat hook from the boat and I catch hold of the shore and I begin to pull, am I pulling the shore to me or am I pulling myself to the shore? What's the answer? You know the answer. Prayer isn't pulling God to my will, but it's aligning my will to the will of God. I read long ago a note from George Barna. I had him on my radio program this last week. By the way, today was my last, my last, my last Wednesday. Tomorrow's going to be my last Thursday. The day after that, the Lord willing, if he decides to keep me on the planet Earth, is going to be my last Friday. Friday. But George Barna in his book Growing True Disciples wrote when Christian adults were asked to identify their most important goal for their life not a single person not a single person said I want to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. I want to make disciples of Christ. Not one. Not a single one. That's how impoverished and desperate contemporary Christianity has become. But imagine if somebody asks you that question. Identify the most important goal for your life. Is it the book of Romans? Is it for whom he did for? No, he also did protestinate to be conformed into the image of his son? Because whether it's your goal or not, God's goal is to make you like Jesus. You see, you have your goals and you have your desires and you have your plans and you have the future that you've marked out for yourself but God's goal, when you wake up in the morning, whatever it is that you have planned, God's plan every single day is to use that day to cultivate the character of Christ and to promote the fruit of the Spirit in your life and to make you like Christ. And he has all of the resources of the universe to accomplish his goal. Paul wrote in Philippians 121, for me to live is Christ. He understood that life centered around what it means to know him and to love him and to serve him. The famous pastor of Moody Church long ago, H.A. Ironside said, quote, No one ever lost out by excessive devotion to Christ. He was the pastor of the church in the 30s before Jesus' freaks became a pejorative in the new testament our life is from Christ John 5:25 it's in Christ Romans 8:2 it's with Christ in 1 Corinthians 1:9 by Christ John 6:57 to Christ 2 Corinthians 5:15 for Christ Philippians 2:16 Jesus Christ living in the believer is the secret of all things This is why Paul could write confidently in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Devotion to the Lord is for the purpose of knowing him for experiencing his presence, provoking maturation. We depend on the Lord and believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in our life. This is why Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Imagine you say, "I have faith." Paul Peter says, "Add to your faith goodness. Okay, I have faith in goodness. okay, add to that knowledge. Well, I have faith in goodness and knowledge. Add to that self-control. Add to that perseverance. Add to that godliness. Add to that brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. And here's what Peter says if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've ever said, I just want to be effective. I just want to be productive. I just want to be useful. Well, guess what? If you add to your faith, goodness and Goodness, knowledge, and knowledge, self control, and self control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love, you will be productive. Devotions serve the purpose of fellowship and growth. Devotions aren't for self improvement or self realization or even self sufficiency. We look for the fruit of the Spirit and dependence on God. But guess what happens when you cultivate the fruit of, this, of the Spirit and then dependence upon the, Lord, upon the Lord? It's going to cause you every single time to reach out in interdependence for one another. And so, devotions include Bible reading. Includes Bible study. It includes prayer. Sometimes fasting. Sometimes worship. Sometimes service to others. Sometimes it means being all by yourself. Sometimes it means exercising discernment. Sometimes it means participating in effective evangelism. But all of those things fall under the great umbrella Of devotion. Donald S. Witness. Wrote quote. God has given us the spiritual disciplines. As a means of receiving his grace. And growing in godliness. By them we place ourselves. Before God. For him to work in us. And that's exactly right. And then we see. The next mention. Of Joshua. Joshua. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 26, turn to Numbers chapter 11, verses 26 through 30. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 26, it says, But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad, not my dad, Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, oh, here's the next mention. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my lord, Forbid them. Then Moses said to him, I'm, I, I can almost guarantee you, I, it's not in the text, but I see it there. And Moses said to him with a great big smile on his face, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp. Both he and the elders of Israel. Here's the fourth mention of Joshua in the books of Moses. Joshua, the son of Nun. This is the second time we've seen that. Who was was Nun? We find that in Numbers 13. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim. You'll remember that Joseph gave birth to two sons in Egypt in captivity. Joshua's a direct descendant of Joseph. While Joshua's serving as Moses' assistant, he gets some unsettling news. Eldad and Medad are prophesying. And when you see that, read telling the truth or read preaching, they're Preaching, they're prophesying in the camp. To Joshua, this is an affront to Moses' leadership. After all, Moses is God's man, Moses is the person who hears from God. So, alarmed and jealous, Joshua says, Forbid them or make them stop. And to Joshua's surprise, Moses wisely said, Are you jealous for my sake? Oh, that all the people of God were prophets! Read. Would that everyone heard from God and told the truth. Can you imagine being in a church where everyone heard from God and everyone told the truth? And that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? Moses is in effect saying, I wish everyone told the truth about God. I wish everyone experienced the anointing presence of the Holy Spirit. And you may not understand the context of the story. Let me give it to you in brief. In the chapter, fire falls from heaven. And some of the people of Israel are filled with bitter complaints in verses 1 through 9 foreigners who accompany them complain. This group of people, you know, oh, we wish we could go back to Egypt. In Egypt, we had all the fish we wanted to eat. In in Egypt, we had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions. We could go to sweet tomatoes and it was like an unlimited buffet. This is like people today. I wish I could go back to Trace Margaritas and slam down some margaritas. I wish I could go back to the world. I wish I could go and, and drink and drug and throw up in a toilet seat on Saturday night and wake up in a place with God knows who. Don't you miss those days of carnality and wickedness and estrangement from God? Don't you miss those days of darkness and emptiness and slavery? Oh, wait a minute. Because that's what they're actually asking for. But here's what they're saying. But now our appetites are gone. We don't have anything to eat than this miserable manna that falls from heaven every day. God sends quail to eat. In despair, Moses tells God, I'm so sick of these people. Do you know what Moses says? He says, I'm so tired of leading a sinful and rebellious people. Lord, this is too big of a job. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to kill me. See, you laugh, but you get it. Lord! what you've asked me to do, I can't do it. And so God tells Moses to summon 70 elders of Israel to the tabernacle. And then God anoints 70 elders and he fills them with his spirit to assist in leading the people. And this is exactly what God wants to do in our church. He wants to help me and help the other leaders of our church by filling you with the spirit, giving you the tools to tell the truth and to pray with people and minister to people and encourage one another. By the way, God anoints the 70 elders with his spirit. The leaders prophesy. And by the way, this is the only time in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the books of Moses where this happens. It doesn't happen before or again. Two of the elders, Eldad and Medad, were absent when they all met. But they began to prophesy in the camp. And thank God Moses was there for Joshua. Do you remember, do you remember what was happening in the New Testament when the disciples were upset because someone not in their immediate fellowship was casting out demons in Jesus' name in Luke 9.49 and Mark 9.38? Jesus, there's somebody, and he doesn't go to our church. He's not in our fellowship. He hasn't gone through the leadership training. And he's casting out demons in your name, and we don't even know who he is. And do you remember Jesus' response? Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Hey, you know what? Someone has a Bible study and it's not you, Gino. Hey, they're listening to tapes and they're not your tapes. Loyalty is good. Loyalty is commendable. But misguided loyalty can be tragic. It can be small. It can be petty. Joshua remains Moses' servant until the day that Moses will die. And people are generous and gracious and supportive. And Joshua is generous and gracious and supportive. But he had a little slip up here. And right away, Moses gets him back on track. William L. Sullivan said, quote, loyalty is so fierce and contagious and energy that it's safe only when the object of it something that we can love or worship when, when we are alone. In other words, it was his way of saying, you need to be careful what you expend all of your loyalty and energy. Now, now think about this for just a moment. Loyalty is good. Can you be trusted with the things of God? Are you loyal? Does your loyalty ever become small? Or become petty. And that's what we want to avoid. Years ago, I read the story of a 17-year-old girl named Carol Fraser. She wanted a, a street named after Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. Elvis died in 1977. The city fathers of suburban Whitehaven assigned the name in a, in a subdivision called Elvis Place. Miss Fraser said she was so excited she didn't know what to do. Maybe go to an Elvis movie. But she had seen them all. She saw Love Me Tender 107 times. Loving You 110 times, my favorite. King Creel 91 times. Jailhouse Rock 79 times. Carol moved from my hometown New Orleans to Memphis just so she could be near Elvis. She lived in a tiny flat with her mother, plus 12 scrapbooks, a life-size cardboard cutout of Elvis, 40,000 pictures of Elvis. You know why I'm telling you this? This girl knows what it means to be loyal. Can you imagine if a Christian began to think about Christ in the same way, where instead of watching Love Me Tender 107 times or Loving You 110 times or King, King Creel 91 times or Jailhouse Rock 79 times, you, you read Matthew 107 times, you read Mark 110 times, you read Luke 79 times. You read John 110 times. You read it over and over and over and over again. In Psalm 78, 37 we read, Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. You know, the Old Testament says that when their hearts became unfaithful, when they became disloyal, God sent servants, prophets, to remind them, turn from your, your sin, turn from your apathy and indifference, walk away, go, turn away from... From all of that stuff. Turn back to the Lord. He loves you. Francis Schaefer warned. Loyalty to organizations and movements. Has always tended over time. To take the place of loyalty. To the person of Christ. My interest isn't in you being loyal to me. Or even to Calvary South Denver. But you know what? My interest is in you being loyal to Jesus, to what the Bible says about Jesus, so that you know him and love him. Burdett Hart said, quote, loyalty that will do anything, that will endure anything, that will make the whole thing consecrate to him. That's what Christ wants. Anything else is not worthy of him, unquote. Love him. Serve him. Cultivate devotion to him. Don't be angry with the people who have left your life. Do love the people who remain in your life. Instead of living a life of anger or bitterness or disappointment in the people who are no longer there. Decide that you're going to love each and every person that God brings into your life. Carl Menninger said, Loyalty means not that I am you, or that I agree with everything you say, or that I believe you're always right. Loyalty means that I share a common ideal with you. And that regardless of the minor differences, we fight for it shoulder to shoulder, confident in one another's good faith and trust and constancy and affection. So what happens when you pray? You see like you never saw before. What happens when you see God? Devotion. What happens when you devote yourself to the things of God? You become loyal. To him. It's the kind of loyalty though. That never leads to pettiness. Smallness. Or ignorance of the truth. These are the characteristics and more. That Joshua is going to need. Not only to deliver the children into the promised land. But to live a life of repeated victories in the end you won't be judged not based on your notions or your ideas about Jesus i'm convinced that the thing that you're going to be evaluated on is your likeness to Jesus do you reflect his love his compassion his mercy his patience because I guarantee you I guarantee you I will resign my position as the pastor of this church if this what I'm about to say isn't true You will become like the thing that you love You will become like the thing that you love And by the way then you will speak to the world About what you really believe about Jesus, by what you say and by what you do, it will communicate. So, what are you telling the world? Because what you really believe about Jesus is going to manifest itself in the things that you say. In the things that you do. What is the gospel. According to you. Next week. Our final. Class. In Joshua's servant academy. And when we do all three. You all get to graduate. Let's pray. Heavenly father. Lord we do pray. That, Lord, you will awaken in our hearts. Not just simply a desire to pray, but to pray in such a way that we begin to see things in a fresh way. That, Lord, you're going to expand our vision. And that with the expansion of our vision is going to come a deeper devotion. And with a deeper devotion, a loyalty to you. And to the the things that you care about. And Lord, I have to believe that that includes each other. Because that's what you care about. You care about the one anothering that's going to take place. And so Heavenly Father, again, we pray that we would cooperate with the most important thing with the most important agenda that you've already set aside for us. That, Lord, with each day that we wake up, that we'll become more and more like Jesus. And that one day, one day, we'll awaken in His likeness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Grace, what have you done?